You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. Abby Westling and Kira Antonucci were devastated to lose their friend Luke to a climbing accident in 2022. But as they learned to cope with this tragedy, they began to dream up something big. In July of 2023, Kira and Abby set out to attempt the Infinity Loop, an epic endurance test piece that summits Rainier twice and circumnavigates the mountain via the Wonderland Trail. The two have extensive experience as guides on Rainier and have summited dozens of times but this challenge would push them to their limits. They also wanted to do it in memory of their friend and raise money for the AOC's Climbing Grief Fund, which had supported them in the early stages of their grief process. Dive into this episode to hear the full story of how they set the female FKT on the infinity loop, the emotional ups and downs of such a massive challenge, why the Climbing Grief Fund means so much to them, and the impact of their incredible work in fundraising for the CGF. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Presented by Adidas Terex, a global leader in the outdoor sporting goods industry. With the mission to enable all humans to live a more connected, conscious, and adventurous life, Adidas Terex combines high-performance technologies with fashion-forward designs to weather the forces of nature and inspire every human being to find their own summits. Since 1981, outdoor research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level, together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. Well, Abby and Kira, welcome to the podcast. Let's just start off with, can you guys introduce yourselves? Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Kira Antonucci, and I am currently coming at you from Utah, where I work as a ski guide, and we're getting some snow, so I'm a happy girl. Uh, And I'm Abby, and I am calling in from Seattle, where I'm currently going to school part-time and working part-time. Awesome. How did you each get into climbing or mountaineering? For me, it like started in Colorado where I'm from. My dad brought me into the outdoors and uh, started taking me climbing and hiking. Uh, Kayaking kind of gave me the rundown of all of the things that are in the outdoors. And I pursued um, a Knowles course uh, as a gap year between high school and college. And that really solidified like the importance and how big of uh, an impact, a big part of like my life would be based in the outdoors. Uh, and then I went to school in the Pacific Northwest at University of Puget Sound, where I was able to continue recreating in the mountains and the rivers. I got really into whitewater kayaking, and that helped a lot in terms of my lead up to to guiding, actually. But yeah, I think being like based in the Pacific Northwest around glaciers and uh, all those crazy jagged mountains was pretty inspiring, and I definitely got to get out and play around in them. Yeah, and I, I grew up in Washington. Uh, I'm originally from Olympia, and classic story of just staring at Rainier my whole life. I wanted to climb it before I graduated high school and kind of got into climbing that way. My dad and I signed up for a guided trip, and I loved my guides. I was super into the experience, and when I went off to college, I met some people that work for RMI, the company that I currently work for, and they kind of inspired me to try my hand at guiding. But 
of course, I took many years to get there trying to enhance my skills. And so in college, just started rock climbing and spent my summers in Jackson Hole and eventually moved to Colorado before coming back to Washington to play on the bigger mountains. Awesome. Okay, so besides the infinity loop, which I don't even know if that would be your answer, but aside from that, what has been the most transformative experience of your climbing career? Potentially impossible question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, I feel like there's been just like so many trips that have gone out where I have failed to accomplish, you know, whatever goal I set out to, to go climb or ski or complete. And the failure usually was based in, you know, poor planning or communication with my partner. And those for me have had an extremely profound impact just in terms of like, I take everything with a growth mindset. So, you know, we fail, we don't get to go and do the objective. Well, A, that's okay because we came back safe. And the primary objective for me is always returning to my bed for sleep. But also being able to avoid that issue in the future. I was asked this question recently as well. And I think that the answer that stood out to me because it's just in more recent history is actually a ski trip that Abby and I did together in which we actually accomplished basically all of our objectives. And they were secondary objectives because our primary objective totally got blown up. But in that, we also were able to like work through some trauma in the mountains together and work through communication and really just establish an amazing partnership. So I think for me, that's probably going to be my most profound climbing slash ski trip that I've been on just because it produced such a productive relationship between Abby and I. Yeah. And I, that's actually the first trip that came to my mind too. I've had like plenty of positive mentorship in the, in the past in in climbing and in the mountains, but that was the first time that I felt like I had a true equal partnership and to see that that was possible and to know that like I can strive for that relationship with other climbing partners and other ski partners felt kind of revolutionary to me just because I had, I've seen a lot of that in other people and always wanted that relationship, but didn't know how, like that it was out there for me. And it was exciting to develop that and like have that kind of just great communication in the mountains. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little later, but it seems appropriate right now. Has your mountain partnership developed over time or did you always click? Seems like you you guys kind of developed it over time. Can you describe that process a little bit more? Yeah, well, I think that one thing that makes Abby and I's partnership unique, and I would say that it is unique to the company that we both worked for, um, RMI, is that equal training and kind of similar experience in terms of guiding and being with clients and that skill set. But Abby and I were introduced through our mutual friend, Luke. I mean, not introduced, introduced. We were introduced when we got hired together. But he was the one who kind of was like, hey, you guys should maybe start doing some stuff together. And both of us had very similar mindsets in terms of what we wanted to go and do. But it wasn't until we actually like sat down and started planning things that it was like, oh, okay, we're talking about this like in a very similar way. And then once we actually like started getting out together, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. I've, I've never felt something like this before. Yeah, definitely just developed, developed over time, small, small trips to big trips. And yeah, our, our mindsets were just very similar. That's awesome. Yeah. I think similarly, Abby, I am yearning for that type of partnership constantly. So it's so (laughs) cool to see that happen. Uh, And then what it produces, right? Like such cool experiences for you guys. Okay, so let's get into the geeky climbing, mountaineering stuff. And I guess running, whatever. For for folks listening who are more rock climbers rather than mountaineers, or maybe they're not, you know, P&W climbers or whatever. What is the infinity loop? Can you give us just like a really brief explanation? Yeah, the infinity loop is... Uh, You basically climb Mount Rainier twice via the Disappointment Cleaver, so that's from Paradise, and you descend twice the Emmons, so going towards White River, and each time 
Uh, you go up and over, you run a different part of the circumnavigation of the entirety of the mountain. So the first time we went up and over and then we ran 30 miles, got back to paradise, went back up and over, and then went the other direction and ran 60 miles. And you end, you start and end at paradise and it creates this beautiful infinity loop. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, doing an actual um, infinity like uh, shape, which is really just cool. What, <laughs> not to be obvious about it, but what about it makes it challenging <laughs> or what was challenging for you guys? I think that our biggest challenge ended up being fueling ourselves. The mountaineering part felt like, I don't want to say relaxed because there are parts of the disappointment cleaver that definitely intimidated both of us, even guiding on it a lot. There's just some, some scary overhead stuff that you have to go under, but fueling ended up being the biggest issue just where we didn't know how to properly like get food down or like what calories at what times. And neither of us surprisingly ever bonked, but it just proved very difficult to eat. <laughs> yeah. Like when you're just pushing yourself that hard, I'm sure it's just like, oh, I'm not feeling it. What's the total distance of the infinity loop? The total distance that we traveled was 133.14 miles. Um, and we also completed 45,233 feet of elevation gain. Yes. So completely crazy. <laughs> and what was your guys' time? So, yeah, tell us that as well. We did it in 94 hours and 19 minutes, which is just under four days. Cool. Okay. So, I'm interested, you know, what brought this on? Why why even dream up doing this? But like, first, tell me a little bit about the transition point from it just being an idea to realizing you were committed to this and you were going to do this. What did that feel like? It felt intimidating, but mostly just really exciting to like, put a date on the calendar or like a range of dates on the calendar that we were like, we are taking this time off of work to do this thing and hopefully the weather pans out for us and we get to do it. And then it was just time to like try to figure out how we we're going to train <laughs> or not train. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How far ahead of time was that kind of decision point? We had been talking about it for, I want to say two years, just kind of like throwing the idea around there. Like this is something that I'd be interested in and this is something that you'd be interested in. and maybe we should do it. And then it was last winter. Um, at some point, you know, I'm in Utah, Abby's in Washington, and we were just like on the phone talking to each other. And it was like, hey, should we actually like, should we try to do this this next summer? And it was like, yeah, we should definitely try to do this. Okay, like when the schedule comes out, we're gonna like take time off and we're gonna like make it a priority. And kind of the idea was like, I mean, definitely the goal was the infinity loop. But it was also like, okay, well, if the weather doesn't pan out, then we at least have time set aside to like go and do a trip, the two of us, and like spend time together as partners, right, and as friends. And so when the availability came out, we yeah took that time off and we knew that like that was kind of looming in our our near future. But I think, at least for me, it took until maybe the month before for it to like sink in and be like, oh, I haven't been running. <laughs> four miles feels hard I should run more and really like start to step it up uh in terms of our training that we did from the beginning did setting an FKT feel important or were you just like we're just gonna do it and see how long it takes I think that it was just in both of our minds that we could probably set the FKT just because the the women's time was a little bit longer and and that being said Caitlin Gervin and Alex Forrest like had like weather they ended up doing like 50,000 feet of elevation gain and like extra mileage because of some some weather that rolled in on them and we were just like well you know if that doesn't happen for us then we can probably beat the FKT so it was something that we wanted to try to do but it didn't feel and we had this conversation a lot while we were doing it too it was like this can't feel this can't overpower the rest of the reason that we're doing this. Like this is for something more than us. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that motivation. 
So like Kira had said about like when we started thinking about the infinity loop, like it was something that we tossed around. It's something that guides at the guide service toss around as just something like crazy to try and do because we spend so much time on the mountain, but it didn't start feeling like something that we should do until after our friend Luke passed. And it was kind of like, well, he could probably do this and he could probably blow it out of the water because he was a really fit guy. And we were like, we should do this for him and we should do this for our community and try to raise some money for the Climbing Grief Fund, which helped us. And so just giving back to our our community felt more important. Okay. So from the beginning, it wasn't only just a sense of like, this is a big challenge that we want to put ourselves through, but it was also kind of intentionally trying to use that challenge to, you know, leverage the community you guys have and like give back. Yeah. Yeah, And I think like a little bit of that is like, there are really big, impressive things that people do and they spend a lot of time and they spend like, you know, a lot of energy doing those things. And Abby and I can appreciate that. But like, when I tell, you know, my parents, for example, that I'm going to go do the infinity loop and I explain to them what it is, it's kind of this overwhelming why. Like, why would you do that to yourself? You know, it's impressive, but like, that sounds horrible. And there's, in a way, I feel like some sort of fascination with this like pursuit of extreme discomfort. And that's basically what the infinity loop is but it grabs people's attention in a way that makes them donate to a cause that's really awesome where you know if abby and i tried to do the same sort of thing for the climbing grief fund but with an obscure peak in the north cascades right or like up in canada it might not have the same like draw to it there's so many people that are looking at mount rainier and so many people who know what mount rainier is across the United States that it like is a pretty prominent objective to then also accompany with a fundraiser. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to dive into that a whole lot more later, but to finish rounding out the the preview, setting up the context, did you both set yourselves rules and expectations going into it? I feel like you guys have started to mention this, like what were your rules for yourself or expectations in terms of like if this happens, we're turning around or this is our priority or that sort of thing. I think the biggest one was not to injure ourselves. And we we talked about it multiple times while we were on the trail too, just because there were lots of moments where we were like, is this pain something that we can push through or is it something that we should listen to and stop? And the overall goal was to make sure that we both came out of it and in one piece enough to like be able to go and do the things that we want to do afterwards, even if that's just because our our knee is hurting too much, which happened a lot. (laughs) And then also safety, just like if, if anything feels dangerous, like on, on the disappointment cleaver, like, because sometimes with warmer weather, you like, you can be more worried about rock fall or ice fall. If anything felt too sketchy, then like we could, turn around and it's not the end of the world. Yeah. And I think that like another expectation just kind of for us was that like, we also stick together the whole time. There is like not going to be any, you know, if one person's done, then we're both done. It's not like, okay, we'll meet you at the finish line. And that like our relationship stayed intact. Um, Like it wasn't like worth like breaking up what we have over, you know, an objective. Okay, so walk us through this wild, crazy experience. Can you just, like, just for now, just give me, like, what was the first summit of Rainier and Descent like for you? I would say we were, we were in really high spirits up the snowfield, despite the snowfield being Kira's least favorite part of Mount Rainier. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's dangerous or... No, it's just so long and boring. uh, (laughs) And you're just reminded constantly of how far you have to go. (laughs) And then I feel like I'll let Kira talk about the upper part of the mountain because 
it we were we were doing really well and we decided to take some caffeine tabs at the Ingram Flats, which is at about eleven thousand feet, um, because we were starting to get a little bit tired. It was like it was nighttime, so we were trying to give ourselves a little bit more energy. But that's when things got a little bit harder too. And I'll just like I don't think we've mentioned it, but we started in the afternoon, like kind of evening time. So we had been up since breakfast and then tried to take naps, but there was a lot of anxiety and jitters so it wasn't Mm -hmm. you know very productive which is why once we got up the snowfield and we're like you know at the ingram flats we were like okay caffeine tabs it's getting dark let's just really make sure we're alert for this overhead hazard and the last time i had been on the mountain i had gotten hit by a rock in the same area which is like something that can happen it was a small rock not that big of a deal it's probably probabilistic like really small like chances wise that i'm gonna get hit again but for whatever reason that caffeine pill mixed with anxiety and i had a full-blown anxiety attack after we passed through our overhead hazard and as we were kind of like winding up the disappointment cleaver it just became apparent to me that i was hyperventilating and could not breathe And so I was like, hey, Abby, like, I don't know what else to do except to, like, nap this off. And we hadn't even made it to the Summit of Rainier once. And it was, like, pretty disappointing on the Disappointment Cleaver classic um, where we, like, stopped for a half hour. And I just, like, napped off this anxiety and then proceeded to puke, like, 20 times, got everything out of my system And then we were able to keep walking and it was like, but both Abby and I at that point were kind of like, oh my God, is this it? Is this us turning around and we're like not even going to summit Rainier once? Like that feels pretty crazy. But once we started walking, we got on the upper mountain, it was like kind of night and day shift for me in terms of like how I was feeling and so grateful that Abby was like patient and we were able to just like work through that little moment. And then on our descent into White River via like the Emmons, it was super firm. This is like now early morning and just getting sun on it. So it was just like really painful walking downhill. Like our knees were like killing us and we're in crampons and you are just like bashing your feet against your boots. And I already have feet problems. So it was like right off the bat, like have blisters and, you know, bruising and that's fine. It was like, I'm used to it, but it was definitely like, gosh, I hope that the second Rainier climb isn't as brutal as this, which it wasn't. We got the the worst climb out of the way. Yeah. Just start off with the hard stuff. Why yeah. not? <laughs> okay. And so then you start the first like true running section, 30 miles to get back to paradise. What was that like? Tr- the transition? What were you thinking Yeah, we got down to White River and we kind of, we unpacked our bags, we repacked our bags, we took care of ourselves a little bit and we took a nap just so we could like have a little bit more energy to keep going. And then the run started off pretty well, but our knees were both, they were still pretty sore from walking downhill for so long. But we were also running around this part of the mountain that we hadn't, neither of us had seen much of before. And so it was just, it was a really beautiful experience just being able to like see these things that like we look at from above, but haven't ever experienced in person before and have a lot of like sleep deprived emotional conversations about how we're doing physically (laughs) on our way back to paradise. And if we were going to be able to do the next climb of Rainier. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, that transition for me was it felt the smoothest because we were like still not that tired and it was like pretty easy to eat the food that we had packed for ourselves, which we realized at that break was the wrong food to pack. We had this like pasta salad that just, it tasted good when we made it, but it was like the worst thing in the world to eat. And then all of our burritos got soggy. So it was like any kind of like our fueling, was like just deteriorating already. We're like trying to get calories in because we knew that that was important. 
Um, and yeah, like Abby said, it was just super cool to see that part of the park. Like I've, I had never circumnavigated any part of Rainier. And so for me, like all of the running was like new scenery for the most part. And it was really cool. We also uh, experienced Abby's fine in the dark when we're climbing in the Alpine. But as soon as it gets dark on the trail, she gets a little anxious, rightly so. She's got a great story, but it definitely, you know, took us a couple minutes to like get into a flow of like how nighttime was going to look because we were going to spend so much time on the trail, like moving through the night. And ultimately, I think we came up with a really good system. So. I'm so curious. What is this story? Does it do with animals? Yeah, I had a mountain lion encounter a few years ago. And so it it just still is something that comes up for me on a dark trail. It's super helpful to have someone with me, but I'm still I'm still intimidated by the dark in the woods. (laughs) Yeah, as Kira said, rightly so. (laughs) Cool. Okay, so about what time did you guys get to paradise back again to paradise? I want to say it was 2 a.m. I think it was because we ended up sleeping for a couple hours. I think we gave ourselves two hours on that one to sleep, which doesn't include like our kind of unwind time, like taking off our our shoes, taking care of our feet, eating some food, um, and then reversing that. And initially we had hoped to start up the snowfield prior to sunrise. And then by the time we actually got going, it was well after sunrise. Maybe not well after, but in the FKT standards, well after. And that was like, I think for both of us, but especially for me, a really hard, that was a really hard transition. We got into the truck and like both of us had been having these conversations of like, what if we like, this could be it. We might not, you know, get up in the morning. Our bodies are tired. Sleeping feels great. Like, why are we even doing this? And my feet at this point were like pretty angry and upset with me. And in the morning I was like pretty, pretty certain that we weren't going to leave the truck, which is incredible that we did because (laughs) like something beyond ourselves was like pulling us towards the snowfield. And I think when it clicked that we were leaving and that we were like doing the thing was when I pulled out a glitter palette and we were able to like put glitter on our faces and be like, yeah, we got this. We can do this. But also, also like crying and putting <laughs> glitter on. Yeah, the glitter didn't stay <laughs> very well. Of the truck, just like tears coming out of my eyes. Like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> It's almost one of those things where like we did this unsupported, but it would have been really fun to be supported, uh, even if that was like emotionally, to just like have people around to witness some of the interactions that Abby and I had. (laughs) And most of those interactions would be us just like deliriously like crying and like multitasking, like trying to get something done. That's so awesome. (laughs) Okay, so you are glittered up. You were exhausted and you start up the snowfield again for the, trying to go for the second summit of Rainier. Can we just take a pause also and just give context? Like you guys are guides. How many times have you each summited Rainier? Like this is like pretty, like this is something you're very comfortable with, right? Yeah. And I've summited after the infinity loop, it's 38 times, but then that's like twice as many times, if not more have we've both gone up the snow field <laughs> to not summit either because of weather or turning around early. Yeah. And I'm just behind Abby at like 35 or 36. Nice. Okay. So did that feel good again? Like, were you like, okay, we were really downing ourselves, but we're walking uphill. This is our, you know, our comfortable space. We know what we're doing. Or did were you still like, why the heck are we doing this on that, on, you know, as you go up the snow field the second time? I think it was a little bit of both. For, for me personally, it felt really good to be like back on the trail and starting up. We both like put a headphone in right off the bat. We we're like, we're not going to pretend to like have cheery conversation right now. Like it's time to just walk uphill, <laughs> which was also pretty helpful. And we since the we did it the first time, we were like pretty in sync for like 
where we we're going to like take off our tennis shoes and put on our, our mountaineering boots and then keep going. Yeah. The, the difference this time is that we were doing, we were starting in the morning. And so there were a lot more people walking up the snowfield because no one's really walking up the snowfield in the evening, like into the dark, but plenty of people are starting at sunrise to get up to camp near. So we had a lot more people around us. I think for me, it was definitely, I mean, still deep hatred for the snowfield. But I think I was feeling more optimistic because from the beginning, I told Abby that if we could walk up the snowfield a second time, then we I knew we were going to finish the infinity loop, which is like a preposterous thing to say because there's so much between the second snowfield and the end. But for me, that's like mentally, truly the crux of Mount Rainier in general, but then like the infinity loop just because I don't know why. I dislike it so much. I just do. But once we got to the top and we're like getting into Camp Mir, uh, right? Like we we work as guides. We have friends that are on the mountain and they're coming back to Camp Mir from their summit. And it was this like really cool experience and kind of the first time that we had had it on the mountain in like a profound way where like people were cheering for us. Like they knew what we were doing because we've passed a whole bunch of people at this point who were looking at us like, why are they crying and like, you know, exhausted? And, and we're like, this isn't normal. Like we're, we're not just climbing Mount Rainier. Like we're doing something else. But of course, nobody knows that when you're on the trail or like, you know, huffing and puffing past them on the snowfield. So it was really cool to come into Camp Mirror and like have all of the clients that are up there know what's going on and be excited for us like some of them knew abby the climbing rangers that are up there know what we're doing and they're excited for us and then one of the guys one of our good friends casey he you know announces to the entirety of camp near like all of the independent climbers like what we're doing and as we're leaving camp near everyone's like cheering for us and it was this like huge boost of mental support that we like we needed at that period of time and it was just kind of like yeah we got this like we're doing it we're doing the thing like let's cruise past this next section it's gonna be awesome and we were able to like carry that like feeling of celebration with us for a little bit which was awesome yeah that does sound like very needed i was wondering though like was climbing during the day did that like slow you guys down having other climbers on the mountain or was it just something to navigate and it wasn't that big of a deal? It, it wasn't that big of a deal. There on the upper mountain, there weren't very many people because most people will climb through the night and be coming down in the morning as we were going up. So we didn't have any like traffic jams. We were actually like the only ones on the upper mountain for the entire day, which felt really cool to, to be up there alone and have this just gorgeous day on the mountain to ourselves it was more just like walking up the snow field and people being like seeing that we're struggling and coming being coming down and being like you're almost there and we're like no <laughs> like we've done this before <laughs> like thank you thank you we're yeah. not almost there but i appreciate that support okay and then so you you're in the upper part of the mountain you make the summit again and head down. Are your knees still screaming or how is the descent this time? So because we had the whole day for the sun to warm up the snow rather than like coming down in the morning when the sun had barely touched the snow, we had a much more pleasant time going going downhill. The sleep deprivation was definitely starting to hit us a little bit more. We actually ended up taking like a 15 minute nap at like 13,000 feet because we were so tired but then we started kind of rallying downhill and we ended up back at white river in in the dark but it was a much more pleasant descent than the first time around and then one more transition for the last 60 miles what did what was going through you guys' minds as you're about to start the last 60 miles of running well i knew like in my head the chances of us finishing were drastically higher right like I was pretty confident that we were gonna finish at that point and I think for me it was kind of like my feet hurt my body's tired I'm tired but like we're in a 
we're going to get going. I also made Abby stop for five hours instead of four hours. I just kind of looked at her and was like, I need five hours of sleep. And she was like, okay, we're taking five hours of sleep. And that extra hour really just helped me a ton. But right from- It helped both of us. I didn't know I needed five hours, (laughs) but I did. (laughs) Yeah. So that was like, I mean, it was really nice to like put away our mountaineering gear, know that we weren't going to have to touch that again, put our shoes, you know, back on, get our running vests. And like our running vests are huge because we have so much food because we're running 60. I mean, it's like, it's not an ultra runner. I've never done an ultra. The furthest I had ran before this was like just under 30 miles, which is wild. But And the amount of snacks that we were carrying with us was just kind of absurd. And so our packs are like, you know, pretty big. And right from White River, you gain elevation. I want to say it's like 2,000 feet, like up to the the first bench. And I think that starting out like that was definitely hard to just like get into a groove, right? Like you're tired, your feet hurt, your muscles are sore, and immediately you're climbing. But the sun was rising, it was getting warmer, and it was like another gorgeous day on the trail. Okay, and so you're slowly making it, you know, you're making it. Was there any kind of obstacles on the way, on on that last leg, or were you just kind of steadily making your way to the finish? I would say the biggest obstacle was just like general, I, I had some pain in my foot that was like starting to slow us down a little bit. But and then I was also just really mentally exhausted. Like I had a a little breakdown at Mowage Lake, which is like the halfway point of that section. And it and it was starting to get dark out. (laughs) But once we were there, it was like we either bail here and like wait for three hours for our friends to drive all the way around the mountain to come and get us or we just keep going and once you leave Mowage Lake to go back towards paradise you just descend quite a ways and so it was like okay if if we if we keep doing this like we're just gonna go to the end there's also no other bail point from there it's like you either go to the end or you walk the same distance out a different direction. So we, Kira got me motivated enough to just keep on walking. And yeah, we just went and went through the entire night. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's like the, I mean, it gets, you know, one big section is the 60 miles. But I think that the last section that was like mentally the hardest was from Mowich Lake to the end. And where I felt like we overcame the most adversity, like, which I think it's just like a product of how tired we were, but everything felt so hard. But yeah, at Mowich, like, it was kind of funny because we were like, we're going to stop. Our motto was like, we would move for, what was it, 15 miles and then take 20 minutes to sleep. And so we get to Mowich Lake and we're like, okay, we're going to sleep for 20 minutes. And there's people who are running the Wonderland Trail. But they have, you know, support and their tents and there's cars and people are car camping. And Abby and I are sleeping on a picnic bench in the middle of like all of these people like cooking dinner, getting in sleeping bags, and we're like freezing our butts off. And ultimately, I was like, Abby, it's going to be warmer once we descend and we can sleep when we get down this hill. And we're both kind of like, yeah, that makes sense let's do it. And so we like, you know, keep running. We're like running down. We like get to this campground. It's dark, like pitch black. We roll into this campground. We lean against a tree next to someone's tent. We were so sorry for the people that were camping. We like rolled in weird hours and we're like leaning up, setting our alarm for like, you know, 15 minutes. And Abby was able to sleep. And I was just like shivering, like unable to like get a wink of sleep. And we like woke up and I was like, I need 10 more minutes. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll just keep shivering. And then finally I was like, okay, Abby, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And we like would start going. And the, the way that we like made it through the night was like, we would have small conversations, but mostly we were so tired, but we knew that we need to like, you know, for, for Abby really. And for me too, but for Abby, if she doesn't hear sounds behind her, she checks behind her constantly. 
And to me, I'm kind of like, I'm right behind you. I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm good. And she's like, I know, but I just like need to know that you're here. And so we started playing podcasts out loud. And that kept us like in the same moment. And like, there is a, you know, external sound that was coming out of us. So like animals knew that we were like going to be around. But yeah, that was like, it was just like crazy because you're like in your own orb of headlamp and it's pitch black around you and every part of your body wants to stop moving and you just have to keep going. And it's like very like up, down, up, down. So you're like descending and you like feel sleepier and then you like start climbing. You're like, oh no, this feels really hard. Okay. So any final stories from those last finishing miles? I think that <laughs> the the last part was just like grinding back to paradise. You get to Longmire where you start seeing all of the people again. It's like very, very popular spot. Like now cars can drive to this area. And so we're just walking the last three miles uphill back to back to paradise while all of these tourists around us are like hanging out by the by the river asking us for directions and we're just like don't talk to us (laughs) like like, I'm crying I took my shoe off at one point because my foot hurt so bad before I realized that I needed to walk with my shoe on (laughs) and then we finally make it like back up to the the parking lot where it's like as busy as paradise can be like the parking lot's completely full there's people everywhere there's teams coming down from the mountain there's teams going up the mountain and we like get to see all all of our friends in the parking lot that were rallied up there to to cheer for us and give us some hugs at the end yeah what were so for each of you what was like the highlight and you know the lowest point of the experience I think my lowest moment was Mowich Lake, where I was having my my mental breakdown and really didn't know if I was going to keep going until Kira motivated me to. I think that I had a lot of lows, Um, (laughs) but I think my lowest point was actually on that last section in the middle of the night. There is this one, I could not tell you where we were, but there's this one like ranger hut that Abby and I like stopped on a bench outside of and we're looking at our backpacks. And I just remember looking at all of my snacks being like, I want to eat absolutely nothing. And I know if I don't eat anything, I'm going to pass out. Like I'm so hungry and everything makes me want to puke and just kind of sitting there in complete darkness. And it's like still around us. There's like a full moon. It's gorgeous. Like in any definition of that word, it's amazing. But I was just like, what the hell are we doing? This is horrible. I never want to do anything like this again. And I think that that was like the lowest moment because I like knew that there was no option to like escape. Like the only way to go was just to keep walking. Okay. And and the highlight (laughs) or was it all low? (laughs) No, there's, there were so many highlights in part, like, so many parts of it were just seeing part of parts of the mountain that we hadn't seen before. And like with this beautiful weather that we had and like all of the amazing sunrises and sunsets and getting to experience that with one of my best friends was, yeah, there, it, it was definitely, there were a lot of low moments, but more highlights than lowlights just from being able to have all of that with, with one person. Yeah, I would, I'd have to echo that. There's, I think that like one of the, our second, our second climb, like watching the sunset on Mount Rainier and like having it be such a still night and quiet night was really incredible. Um, just cause we're up there a lot, but it's usually, you know, busier. And then I think that the very last morning, the, the sunrise in Indian Henry's like area was, I was upset about having to walk uphill more, but we like stopped for a break and it was just like this part of Mount Rainier I had never seen before. And the wildflowers were popping off like crazy. And it was just so still and quiet. And Abby and I were giggling because our knees hurt glitter tears down our face. And it was just like, it was perfect in that way. Yeah. So I'm interested, you know, I've had my friends have also lost a a dear friend and 
a couple people did, you know, a really massive enduro fest kind of in memory of them and like as a way to like fulfill a pro like a goal that they had together and all this stuff. So I'm kind of familiar with what you may have been experiencing in terms of like the way that grief might have been part of the infinity loop experience. Do you guys want to talk about that? Was that something on your mind? I mean, I know that for at least some of my friends, the horrible hardness of the actual enduro fest sometimes can just take over and fill up that space, but sometimes it can really sit with you. So what was your experience of that? I think that we had a full over a year to think on this and do do the infinity loop with Luke in mind. And so it wasn't, at least for me, like he was on my mind a lot, but I think that because that pain and grief wasn't so present as it was the year prior in the summer, it was, it was possible for the like difficulty of the thing that we were doing and more like the positive memory of him um, mm -hmm. to take over rather than feeling that intense grief as we were both feeling the year before. There's like that description of how when grief is fresh, it's like this giant ball in a box and eventually your box gets bigger and the grief doesn't like hit as, as often. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that like it wasn't, it, the grief just felt smaller in that moment. And it was more just like all these positive memories and like the great reasons that we were doing this and the people that we were hopefully helping by doing this kind of took over. And I think for me, like maybe it was a sleep deprecation or just like how exhausted I was. There's like moments where I felt really close to Luke. And in those moments, it was like him being like, hell yeah, Chica. Or like, you guys got this, you're badasses. And I think that like to both Abby and I, Luke was such a hype man. And not that like our community isn't, you know, like doesn't have, you know, other hype men or like, you know, a plethora of them. He was like the number one supporter and in this kind of event was definitely or would have been like number one cheerleader, like would have been there at the finish line, would have been there, you know, at the halfway point to just like really like hype us up and like give us energy. And I think even at like one point when I was by myself for a second, because like on some of the uphills, Abby and I would like go at our own pace and we were only like a couple minutes behind or in front of each other. But when I got to the top, it was kind of like a, like I did like, you know, a shimmy sort of thing that uh, Luke would do when we went like skiing together, would like go on runs. And I think that like Abby was saying, like given the amount of time that had passed, it was kind of this like perfect way to, to feel closer to him and, and get that positivity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So let's dive more into that if you guys want to. Obviously, you lost a dear friend and then you looked for support and resources and you found the Climbing Grief Fund. If you want to share, what was it like initially for your community or for you individually to experience that loss? And then how did the CGF, like what did it mean to you to have access to the grants or to find a therapist or however you use the CGF? I think that when it initially happened, I was in Washington and I was actually uh, staying with Luke visiting and I was out um, like seeing other friends for a couple days and got the call from my roommate here in Utah, who's also part of the RMI community and was able to call Abby as well. And initially we didn't know that Luke had passed. I think that it was like a pretty good idea that he had, but there was this kind of overwhelming feeling of like, if anybody, it's going to be Luke who pulls through, like it's going to be him. And, you know, initially like we had, once we, once we knew there was a group of us who went up to Bellingham to be together and to be with his climbing partner who survived and, and meet his family, which was like a really hard way to meet them. It was this really overwhelmingly amazing feeling to be part of a community that was that tight knit, that like showed up all together for this person and for his climbing partner. 
And I think that his climbing partner, you know, one the the first night that we got there, we're all in his apartment and he was kind of talking to us and telling us about it. And his gut reaction when it happened while he was like descending the mountain by himself was that this singular event was not going to ruin his life and it wasn't going to ruin his relationship climbing. And I think that hit me and a lot of our community members in a pretty profound way of like, that's not what Luke would want. He wouldn't want us to to change our lives over this. And he wouldn't want us to, to fixate on this in an overwhelmingly negative way. But in order for that to happen, like we all need help. And it was both an individual understanding and was brought up like communally, like what resources existed out there. Um, and a lot of us found our way to the Climbers Grief Fund uh, for help. I think, yeah, I, I was not in Washington. Like Kira said, she called me. I was in Colorado. I was supposed to start teaching a course, um, like a winter-based course, like in a couple of days. And um, as soon as I found out, I didn't really know what to do because I didn't really have anyone around that knew Luke. And so I, I was kidding myself that I was going to like teach this course. And then the next day I was talking to a, another friend in that area and she was like, you need to go home. And so I just like, I drove straight back to Washington and like tried to find community w- where I could. And there were some friends from college that knew Luke and we all got together and we went to Ashford and we met up with his family and it's, it still just didn't really feel like we knew what, what to do with all of that or like where to go from there. And it became pretty clear to me that I was going to need like more help than my community could offer. And so like Kira said, we were kind of shown some options, including the climbing grief fund and, I do have to shout out to RMI too, like they created a fund for guides because they also knew that the community would need support. And so like you could apply for a grant through the company as well if you needed to, but then like pointed to the therapist's page on the Climbing Grief Fund for like who to, who to potentially talk to. And it was super helpful to just like know that there were resources out there for people in this community that these accidents happen to and they're not necessarily something that you can just talk to and anyone about without someone being like why do you still go do the things that you do like maybe take a break from climbing and it's like that's not an option (laughs) yeah how did um each of yours relationship to the mountains or climbing change at all if at all like maybe it didn't I think that I mine at least mine has changed like fairly significantly. I'm still working through a lot of fears that don't necessarily hit me in my daily life, but they just come up in in any of my outdoor activities. Like I can be out running and think of like the worst possible scenario that could happen. And and then like as the activities maybe get a little bit more risky, like that those feelings come up more. Um and so it's been a process to work, to work through all of that, to like still want to go and do the things that I, I love to do and that make me feel alive, but to know that I'm going to feel these fears and have to work through or work with them is what I've been saying instead of work through them, because there's not necessarily any working through it. It's just working with it. I think that that's like a, a really good way of putting it. I I think that for me, my ability to find low state in whatever I'm doing has become very interrupted by these external like thoughts and fears that infiltrate. And it can be as like simple as I'm walking on a slabby piece of rock with some level of exposure. And even though it's flat, I'm freaked out that I'm going to trip, fall and like go over. And it's kind of like this, well, that's not going to happen because I'm just walking. And if I'm careful with my, you know, my footwork, then it's fine. And so it is very much like working with these interruptions to, 
to minimize them, but just being able to jump into an activity and find flow state that at some point in my life I used to be able to do, it isn't as easy anymore. Yeah, well, I'm so happy that you guys found the CGF and that it was valuable. Uh, I know so many people who it means so much to because, yeah, grief is super hard and it's really complicated and it doesn't necessarily, it like transforms and evolves and that sort of thing. Kind of to like take a bigger step back, what do you wish more climbers were talking about when it comes to mental health in general or maybe specifically like processing grief or something like that? I I wish that more people would name it because I do think that there are like, obviously there's like a degree of separation to every accident, but every accident also hits. And for me, when there's like another death in the community, even if I didn't know that person personally, but I know people that knew that person, it affects me. And I love the outdoors. I love recreating outside. It is like a huge part of who I am. But every time that one of these things happens, it feels like a little wave that comes and hits again. And I wish more people were like, A, comfortable just naming it and like calling it what it is. Like, I'm scared for X, Y, and Z. And this person just, you know, passed away. And that reminded me of my mortality. And like, I want to just take a moment and appreciate that, like as partners in the backcountry to create a more supportive like environment because I do feel like sometimes when I go out with people who haven't experienced even close to a level of grief that we have in losing one of our closest friends and close friends subsequently, it feels like there has to be this like shell on the outside where everything's fine. I'm entirely confident in what I'm doing. You know, placing gear is like no problem for me. There's no doubts that are seeping into my mind. And the difference of going with somebody like Abby is like, as we're climbing, if I'm like placing a piece of gear and I'm like, Abby, I really don't know if this is good. Like, it feels really scary to me. She'll be like, why? Like, talk to me about it. Like, Mm. you know, it's not making her necessarily more nervous, right? She's just like, what's going on? And if we're able to level with each other and be like, right now, I'm feeling really close. I'm feeling my mortality. Like it's, you know, really affecting me. She can be like, great, I'm in a good headspace. Like, let me take this lead. Right. And then we'll swap next time. And I think kind of the mindset of like, no ego amigo, right. Like safety first and like, let's just have fun. Um, I wish that that was a more prominent mindset throughout the whole community. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel very similarly. And just like that, you never really know what someone else is going through that you might not be as close to. I know that like, for me, I've had some trouble finding new partners recently, just because of of that feeling of being like, I might, I might be leading something and I'm not necessarily sad, but I might start crying. (laughs) And it also it like that doesn't mean that we have to like stop doing what we're doing. Like I want to keep on going, but I also am going to cry. And knowing that like that's okay is is hard with someone new a- as a partner. And so I I do wish that it was just something like more commonly talked about amongst climbers. Just like there is this like, and I I don't know if Kira feels this way or if you feel this way, but like it it has felt like this last year has brought on a lot of a lot of loss in the mountains. And yeah, I just I want more I want everyone to like know that they can talk about it. And that like there are there are resources out there. And it doesn't have to be something that like keeps you away from climbing, but something that you just like can can work through or with with your climbing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And kind of as a follow-up question, I, I when I listened to a different podcast you guys did about the Infinity Loop, one of you mentioned kind of this idea that there might be unique mental health challenges for guides. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what what do you mean? Yeah, I think that, well, one is kind of the community and like how tight-knit it gets, right? Obviously for us, losing Loop hit and impacted our community heavily, but also because our livelihood is dependent on us recreating in these high consequence environments, 
or working, not recreating, in high-consequence environments, we don't really get a break when something like this happens, unless it happens during, you know, the right season when we're not required to be working. But if this happens, maybe you get a couple days off and then you're expected to be in front of clients and be in these areas so that ability to be really transparent with your emotions and like feel the things and work through it doesn't really exist. It gets more suppressed. And I think over time can build up for members of the guide community and push them out of recreating altogether, right? They're just doing this for work and they're no longer doing it for fun or push them out of the industry as a whole because it goes unnamed and unaddressed. And, you know, even though a company like RMI offered us a stipend for mental health, which is awesome, right? It's like addressing the problem. We don't have, I mean, we're seasonally, like a lot of us don't get any sort of health benefits or healthcare from the companies we work for. And if this happens in season or just before a season, there's a limited amount of time that they can allow us to take before we're needed back at our job. And I think that that can be extremely challenging. You're like trying to calm the nerves of your clients, like everything's fine. And in your head, you're like, alarm bells are going off, right? And it might not be related to what you're doing in that moment. A lot of us are really good at separating like, you know, this is subjective and this is objective hazard. And like, we're worried about the objective hazard primarily, but it does weigh weigh on you throughout a season or multiple seasons. Do you want to add anything, Abby? Or I, I think Kira said it really well. I just, I, I would add that like the cumulative stress of being our job subjecting us to objective hazard <laughs> so often and like adding on losses in the mountains I think just exacerbates the the issue. And that's something that's not necessarily talked about in the guide industry or like in our debriefs as guides. Like I don't get to say at the end of my day, like I was really stressed out in this situation, not necessarily because of any objective hazard, but because of like something that I was feeling from other experiences because our conversations at the end of the day are supposed to be objective about like what we were subjecting ourselves to or our clients to. So I think that like being able to bring that kind of conversation into the guiding world would benefit everyone just so that people can talk through those feelings of being like, I know that we weren't in danger in this moment and like for X, Y, Z reason, but I was still feeling these stressors and like being able to keep tabs on each other and like how we're doing by talking about that. For sure. Okay, so as we're low on time, I just wanted to ask kind of one last question. You know, you've got a couple months of distance now from your Infinity Loop FKT. First, like I didn't say congratulations earlier. So also, congratulations. You guys are badasses. What do you think this accomplishment means to you? And like, what did you learn? I, oh gosh, it means it means so much. And, and like not necessarily like something I can add to my resume kind of thing, but more just like emotionally it, it meant so much to like have that experience with Kira to like have that experience with my community and like be able to raise that much money for, for people that like are using the climbing grief fund and, and just get the word out about it to so many people as well. Yeah. I just think that that's like, it's an experience that I'll carry with me forever just like hold dearly to my heart I would echo all of those reasons and add that it feels really rewarding to like the little girl in me be like I did that like I and I I know that like Abby and I when we were initially setting out for this goal it was kind of like well we're just gonna go see if we can do it and if we can walk uphill for seemingly forever and if that's like within our abilities And I think because it's something that's so challenging, there's this overwhelming feeling of accomplishment, like physically and mentally. Like it's not only was it physically challenging, it was even more so mentally challenging. And we were able to like use all of those challenges and complete this task instead of, you know, turning around or bailing from it. 
when it got hard. And I think that that's something that will always make me feel accomplished and capable at the end of the day. It's like, I might not ever be in that kind of shape again, you know, down the line, but it's like, but I did it at some point in my life. That was me. And if I'm capable of getting through that mentally, I'm capable of accomplishing so many other feats in this lifetime that before seemed far away. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat with me and tell your story. Uh, again, you're, you're badasses. I love that you did this. Hearing your story is really cool. And thank you so much for making it a fundraiser for the CGF. I know that the Climbing Grief Fund means a lot to a lot of people. It clearly means a lot to you guys. And so the fact that you are fundraising for it means that you're like really giving back to the community in a really beautiful way. So I hope people listening, if they need that resource, they can definitely find it on the American Alpine Club website. And hopefully this discussion has also helped them. So yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Inspired by the impact of the Climbing Grief Fund or need such resources yourself? Support this work at membership.americanalpineclub.org donate. And learn more about the Climbing Grief Fund resources available to you at americanalpineclub.org slash grief fund.